And then I'm going to ask you how the baseball game was, but we probably won't keep this in because we talk about baseball too much. I mean, it's America's greatest pastime, which is a lot like anarchy. (laughs) America's greatest pastime? I mean, I think anarchy has always been prevalent in a lot of movements, but it's very easy to whitewash over it because... It isn't as definitive as, say, like the communists and the socialists, because other political movements have like, here's what the plan is. This is how we work within the system or adjacent to the system. And anarchy's like, uh, we're just going to kind of do what we want and try to figure out what's best for everybody. And so there isn't the same definitive rules for anarchy. And so it's always been in America's universe. I think it's always kind of been, what's the word? It's like this thing we'll never, we'll never reach, but we idealize a lot. Like this idea of humans looking after other humans and being truly empathetic. And, and there's all these teachings, especially in Western culture, that emphasize that. But I don't think really going to practice. But anyways, I'm just saying it's part of culture, like baseball's part of culture. <laughs> We'll always have baseball and anarchy in the United States. But how was the game? I have decided that I have to eat nachos at the game in order for my team to win. Oh, good. So last Friday, we ordered all this queso. So we've been eating queso all weekend. So we went to the ball game. I was like, oh, I don't think I can do nachos. We've been eating so much cheese. It actually gave me heartburn. So it's like... Maybe we don't do that. And then we ordered our Dodger dogs and the game's really close. And I believe the Padres were up. I think it was like two to one for a while or something like that. And then about the fifth or sixth inning, I was like, you know, I think we have to get the nachos and we get the nachos and we eat it. And then we immediately scored a bunch of runs. (laughs) And then the game was five to two for an inning. And then I think it was like, five to four and I was flipping out because I was like this is too close and I ate the damn nachos but we won we won (laughs) well that's good I'm glad so it was a fun game and I know we talk about baseball a lot but I think it's also been really this probably sounds so stupid it's been a really important thing during the pandemic because one for a while when there was no new tv I was looking forward to ball games I was like okay we were watching a sporting event like this is going to be something new and I don't have to watch some TV show I've seen for like the hundredth time. Right. Sure. Yeah. So that was exciting. And then now being able to go to games in person, when you have the Delta variant rising, it's like, this is a good reprieve because we don't feel comfortable going to movie theaters. We're still kind of like iffy about being indoors and eating and drinking. So it's like having a baseball game to go to where you're outside. It just adds a sense of like, recreation and relief yeah that makes sense
can't remember exactly how we finished this conversation the last time, but what you were saying about American tradition with anarchy, because I often think like it is not a very American tradition. I feel like it is more, if anything, like there's Spanish and Italian anarchist traditions. Oh, where as in America, like we talked about on the Luther Blissett episodes, Americans are less okay with uncertainty and grayness between the black and white. So I feel like, in my opinion, it feels less American in that way. Yeah, I think in true American ideology, anarchy is not really there at all. But when you go through American history, there's always been anarchists there. But we don't talk about them or acknowledge them because they are they are truly anti-American ideology. Like Mike and I were just talking the other day about how Mormons are probably the most American of the Americans because they are very huge on being like entrepreneurs. They're very huge on like reinventing things. The Mormons created their own currency almost as like a fuck you to the United States. But like by doing that in a way, it made them like more American. You're right. That is very true. (laughs) I'll agree with that. But I feel like when people talk about what they believe in, it sounds a lot like anarchy, which is why you have libertarians trying to argue that they also have a form of their own anarchy. Right. Maybe we should just introduce the show. This is Sex with Ghosts. I'm Bridget here with the altruistic wisdom seeking guru of the podcast ages molly hi bridget that's a great description of me i appreciate it (laughs) today we're talking about anarchy we do have a specific point in history that molly is going to tell us about the Paco and vanzetti trial which was a huge what do i want to say president for Americans' relationship with anarchy. Yes. But before we get into all that, Molly, what is your relationship with anarchy? I don't think back on that time often. So I might be misrepresenting my history, and I apologize if I am, because I don't really remember. It was definitely something that I studied a lot and read about and surrounded myself with was this college or pre-college this is post-college oh post-college i figured you would have started dip your toes in it at least during college because i feel like this was a fun topic (laughs) sure sure it was the end of college and the beginning of my adult life when i moved to portland i didn't know anyone obviously and so you know i'm looking for things to do so i did go to a few like anarchist books shops and like events that's big in portland yes yes yeah i would say my relationship with anarchy started in high school for sure thought i was a punk kid loved the idea of anarchy definitely a more philosophical way there was nothing in oskaloosa iowa <laughs> that was at all anarchy focused or related There were maybe like a handful of poor kids like myself 
who also liked punk music that talked about anarchy. And that was like the most you got. And then Laurel, who, you know, she moved to Portland when I was in my senior year of high school and she brought back as a gift, a crime think book. And I read that book probably within a week. And it's all mostly, if you've ever seen a crime think book, which you might've while you were in Portland, it's usually a book full of like, cause there's multiple crime think books out there, but they're usually like just full of essays from anarchists and critical thinkers about what is anarchy. And I think my turnoff about anarchy was there's also an undercurrent of anarchists who are like, we shouldn't focus so much on culture and we should live off the grid. And those things about anarchy really bothered me. (laughs) I now as an adult see how problematic culture is. But at the time, culture to me was like the things that made life interesting. (laughs) You're telling me we shouldn't have that? And living off the grid was definitely much easier back then. And I definitely avoided getting a smartphone for a long time and avoided being too tech savvy for a long time because I felt like, you know, this is something we can't rely on. And then eventually you realize like, this is just how the fucking world works, at least for now. And if you don't understand this tool, how can you even fight against it? You know? So then I fell off the anarchy wagon and then I feel like I've come back to it though, especially during these hard times and having a reignited interest in protesting. I think millennials for sure kind of fell asleep after Occupy Wall Street didn't really go anywhere. So I feel like that's kind of like why we also sort of chose this topic. It came up, we did a a Labor Day podcast. Was that last weekend? Two weeks ago when it comes out. But that kind of made us start talking about these topics again and realizing like they're important and they're important to the movement and the movement being Black Lives Matter and being fighting for things like universal health care and fighting for free education. All these sort of movements kind of are connected back to anarchy. I think it's really hard to define anarchy. And I pulled this quote because I thought it was pretty well articulated. It's from Ruth Kina, who is a professor of political theory at Loughborough University. And she had this great quote on this website, fivebooks.com. I can't really speak to fivebooks.com other than it just seems to be a website that gives you five books on a topic and they talk to a professional that studies that topic. And so I thought Ruth Kina had a great quote. And she says, it's always tricky. I think anarchism describes a set of practices. It describes politics. It also describes a tradition. And within that tradition, there's a set of cultures. It is a bounded political movement, but it's defined by the way that it advocates. Those who call themselves anarchists engage with those traditions and cultures and change their practices over time. Basically oversimplifying, it seems that the movement leans into humans' ability to naturally cooperate And foundationally, we should build institutions focusing on that. So I think that causes a lot of ambiguity. And so I think when we've talked about anarchy in the past, I think we sort of talk about with a lot of confusion, but I think it's because a lot of different movements have somehow subscribed themselves to saying like, oh, no, we're influenced by anarchy or our end game is anarchy. And the 
clearest thought of anarchy that most people have, which is true, but I don't think it's as simplified. It's it's similar to when we say like abolish the police. We don't mean don't give people aid. The same with anarchy. When you hear abolish the government, it doesn't mean that if we get rid of the government, that people are just left to suffer or without agency from a mass. It just means like we should redefine how we get that agency. And it leads to a lot of creativity and it leads to a lot of clashing ideas, even within the anarchy movement. I think that's an important point to emphasize. It is not just one way to look at things. It's multiple ways. It's important to realize that when you go down the anarchy hole, because I don't think there is any one right person, but I think most anarchists would also see that in other anarchists. Like we might not exactly agree on the process of how to get there, but ultimately we don't need a government in the way that traditionally governments have been used, which is regulating people. This idea that you need an outside force for people to behave or to do what's expected of them. Some interesting stuff I found is that the IWW, which I think we talked about in the Labor Day episode, the Industrial Workers of the World, is an anarchist union. So a lot of their practices within the union is coming from an anarchist idea of thought. A lot of people on the left on some level, have been influenced by anarchy. I think it's also super funny is the book 1984. So that book was written with the thought of, do you fight for the revolution or do you compromise the revolution to fight the fascist regime? And when Trump became president, right, everyone started buying the book 1984, like, oh, this is the end of times. And what I thought was so funny about that is like, just because Trump's in charge doesn't doesn't make it any more or any less 1984 than when than when we had Obama as president. Like they're still within the same system, and the system itself is the problem. I still think that quote is very relevant. As much as the system was the same, people feared that it was going to get worse under Trump because it was talked about quite a bit when Trump became president was that there were these norms that presidents followed and because they weren't laws and rules, Trump wasn't going to do that. So he could have pushed the system in the direction of fascism. So even though it was the same system, there was still that threat that was real. Yeah. I think during Bush's Bush W's presidency. They expanded the power of the executive order. Yes, yes. And Obama used that too. He used that to send drones. Yes. And so, yes, putting uh, Trump into presidency was an accelerant on a fire that was already happening. Yes. But I just think it's funny because that's kind of like the context that a lot of people, I'm going to say liberals, because I feel like progressives were already aware of the problem. But a lot of liberals were like, oh, no. (laughs) It's a re-1984 as though the previous context didn't exist. You know, like, oh, Trump's the problem. And it's like, 
no, there's always been a problem, friend. And now that Biden is president, too, you see the the flip where you see a lot of conservatives now saying it's 1984. And it was like, yeah, conservatives saying that are just like, you're really behind. <laughs> like if, if you're afraid of Joe Biden, yikes, you really need some help in studying world history. To me, that's still relevant to like fight. I hate it because I get these stupid updates from my congressman and he's just Trump clone Florida guy or whatever. Oh, no. So he's just constantly telling me about how he like they they were trying to impeach Biden recently. Did you hear about this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now they're calling him King Biden. But as you were saying, like that requires such cognitive dissonance that we probably can't ever really fight it because there's no logical way they got to that point. And I'm definitely not advocating that Joe Biden is the answer. Joe Biden also is very problematic because he's also in the same system. I'm I'm more on this anarchist, like we kind of need to burn down the system. And I'm open to a lot of the creative ways to do that. Part of the reason why I love following a lot of my local political groups here, like Ground Game LA the Democratic Socialists of L.A., um, a lot of these people who come from these similar backgrounds of reading like Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky, where it's very influenced in anarchy thoughts. But how do we how do we creatively fight this system and change it and make it better for everyone? And that change scares most people who have already adopted and accepted a lot of American ideologies. And depending on where you're at, like somewhere like Florida, where you have a crazy senator telling you that they're going to impeach Biden, their belief of what's American is going to be different than the people at the anarchist bookstore in Portland. And that's the true divide, not this. This is what rural people think. This is what urban people think. The divide is how are we servicing people? And what do we expect as people from those services? And the saddest thing is that most people are under the belief that we're incapable of helping everyone. And that's something we should just accept. I think that's that Ayn Rand way of thinking is terrifying. <laughs> if that was the argument that they came to with me, I'd laugh at them. Like, seriously, that's your reason? We can't help everybody? Really? I think there is. I mean, when COVID happened, they were like, yeah, fat people and old people are going to die. So what? And people were saying that and they were OK with that. And then they started downplaying the severity of COVID. And it's like, why is that OK? Why is it OK to downplay the severity of COVID? But then you'll flip the coin and then be very pro-life. And all of a sudden you have to save every unborn child. Yeah. And they're a child. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Oh, God, that's gross, though. That's just ugh, wow. We should probably get to the episode. So, right. Of course. <laughs> but I kind of want to intro it because when Molly said we should do Sacco and Vanzetti, my point of view was, OK, great. Why don't you research that story? Tell me the story and I'll try to research America's relationship with anarchy. And I read a ton. And most of what I was reading is that 
this event and there might be a couple other events around the same time with like Lucy Parsons and Emma Goldman that kind of culminated and created this discourse that the anarchists are dangerous. And if you actually study anarchy history, and today we're not going into the full history, it's not a very violent movement. It's actually very peaceful because the main objective is about how do we help everyone? How does everyone become involved? And it's not an oppressive system where you're being told you have to do X to be a member of society. So I didn't get a lot of, a lot of tangible research done on our relationship because the event that Molly's going to talk about was so prolific that the FBI and the CIA and other government agencies pointed to this event as though, see, this is what happens if anarchy starts gaining momentum. And what's so terrible is that for almost, what, 150 years, people still buy into this. And it's uh, not true. It's much like today's protests where, you know, the Black Lives Matter, you had the guy showing up in the black umbrella who is there specifically to light things on fire and get people riled up. Those aren't people who are associated with these movements, typically. The people who are associated with these movements are trying to end the oppression. They're not trying to start a war. Um, and I think that's just something important to realize and know. And that's what makes this story so epic. We'll get to it later, but I did make a quiz for Molly to guess who the anarchist is. But before we get to that, why don't you open up with Sacco and Vanzetti? Sure. Bartolomeo Vanzetti was born on June 11th of 1888. And Nicola Sacco was born on August 22nd of 1891. They're both born in Italy, and they both arrive in the United States at 20 years old. The history of anarchy in America, it runs through immigrants. Yeah. I guess you could say that pretty much about everything, because that's just what America did. We took all these other people's traditions, and we made them our own. I mean, America is a, it's a new country. Compared to all these other countries, it was a bunch of land that we stole and then told people we were for sale, giving them the idea that they could come to a place and start over and afford the land. And they're told that there's going to be industry. There's going to be all these promises when you get here. And I don't think that's just something that immigrants told themselves. I think America used that because they wanted to build up their own population to legitimize themselves as a country. Like we need people here so that we are less vulnerable to attack and less vulnerable to another government's system. Sacco and Vanzetti met at a strike in 1917 and bonded over Italian anarchist Luigi Galliena. Galliani. 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 Luigi Galliani's ideas. So, uh, we know that they're definitely anarchists. They're Italian. They are living in Massachusetts at the time. This is Boston? Uh, it's close to Boston. 
But Massachusetts is a pretty tiny state, so you could say that anywhere is close to Boston. <laughs> That's fair. In Braintree, Massachusetts, in 1920, Frederick Parmenter and Alessandro Beardelli are fired upon by two men with pistols. They are the payroll clerk and the bodyguard of a shoe factory named Slater and Morrill. And they were carrying $15,776.51 at the time. Oh, what do you think that's worth today? You know what? I was kind of curious about that. I can do it. But I think it was a lot of money. And at the time, there were a lot of robberies and holdups in the area. And I speak of area generally the larger, probably, New England area, perhaps. So there's kind of like a Bonnie and Clyde situation. Yes. The two shooters jump in a car that drives up with uh, a group of other people, and it speeds away. And two days later, the car is found abandoned in the woods. Parmenter and Berardelli are killed. Uh, around the same time, there's another robbery shooting in a neighboring town of Bridgewater. So the local police are investigating both of these crimes and kind of looking for connections. And in both of the cases, there's a gang of people involved, there's a getaway car, and the murderers are believed to be Italian. Is that like a, a xenophobe thing? Yes. Okay. So the local police at this time, they're looking for an Italian man with a car pretty much. And they find an Italian man named Boda. Okay, it took me 20 minutes to figure this out, but $15,776.51 in 2021 is worth $217,427.02. So they were basically robbed for 200K. Ooh, that is actually quite a lot. That's a house. So... Mario Buda, or in America, Mike Boda, he's Italian. He's living in Cocoset, which is the direction that the car took off from in the Bridgewater holdup. The car is in the shop at the time when the police come to look. So they ask the garage owner to call them up when the Italians come to pick up the car. The police find out that Boda is living with a radical named Koachi. And on April 16th of 1920, Koachi misses his deportation hearing. Uh-oh. So the police do come check it out to see why he missed the deportation hearing. And they find him packing his trunk. And he's very anxious to leave the country and go back to Italy. So Koachi actually does get back to Italy. Oh, so he ends up being deported or does he just willingly go? I don't know if he's deported or he just wanted to leave, which I'll get to the reasons why he may have wanted to leave. Okay. The police also think, well, it could be that he was connected to these murders and holdups. There was no one murdered in the Bridgewater incident, I don't believe. It was just the brain trees. Because of the circumstance, the police decide that the people who are going to pick up Boda's car are going to be the suspects in the Braintree crime. Now back to the situation at the time. 
This is during the Red Scare. It's not just the communists. The anarchists are also very, very heavily targeted. These Italians that we're speaking of in this story are anarchists and they do attend anarchist meetings. And within this group is a man named Salcedo. Andrea Salcedo was being held in a room in the New York offices of the Department of Justice right at the time of these events. Okay. Salcedo is found dead on the sidewalk outside of the building. So clearly murdered by cops. Yes. So this is the circumstances we find our protagonists in. They are very concerned that the feds are rounding up and killing anarchists. What? Our federal police are killing anarchists? I don't believe it. And due to this, Sacco, Vanzetti, and a third man, Norciani, want to use Boda's car to, quote, hide the literature and notify the friends against the federal police. Oh, no, this is not good. So, of course, all four come to pick up the car, but it's not ready yet. The license plates aren't on the car for whatever reason. The owner of the garage tells them you should not drive this car, but also notifies the police. Yeah. So do you think that was just a stalling tactic so that he could notify the police and get the cops aware of what's going on? I'm not quite sure because you said earlier that when Boda left that the cops were then ready to suspect that anyone else who would be affiliated with this car would somehow be involved with these robberies. And so I'm thinking these cops had to tell the garage owner like, hey, so someone's going to come for this car when they come do whatever you have to do, but like get us in the loop so that we can catch them. So I feel like for whatever the the owner of the garage was motivated by, maybe he hated anarchists or Italians. Yeah. Or maybe thought like I'm doing right by the law, but whatever the motivation felt like, okay, the cops want these guys, so I'll do what I can to help them. Very possible. I did find the name, Ricardo Ortiani. So the police are notified and Sacco and Vinzetti are arrested. Boda does escape and Ortiani is arrested the next day. So Boda does end up back in Italy. He does escape the country. Oh, I thought he already left. Boda's roommate was Koachi, and Koachi already left. Oh, okay. Sorry if I'm make. I hope I'm not making this more confusing. No, it, it is. It's a bit confusing, so uh, we'll leave that in there just in case other people are also confused. Okay, so Koachi was using Boda's car, or no, they're just roommates. Okay, sorry, I'm putting up my red yarn right now and putting pictures up. <laughs> but I think generally they're all friends and they all move in the same circles. Yeah. Orciani is arrested the next day, but he was at work bo- during both crimes. So he is let go. His alibi is believed. But Sacco had steady employment at a shoe factory and had been working during the Bridgewater crime, but had taken the day off during the Braintree murder. So they hold Sacco. Vanzetti was a fish peddler and his employer couldn't give alibis for either day because as a fish peddler, the employer is not aware of your every movement. 
We'll talk way more about alibis very soon. Okay. But first, let's go into a quiz. Okay. So I created this quiz and Molly, you have to pick. I give you two options. You have to tell me which one is the anarchist. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Your first question, Woody Harrelson or Christian Bale? Wow. That's fascinating. Fascinating question. Uh, I guess I have to go with Woody Harrelson. Yes. In 2013, I believe it was, Woody Harrelson did an interview with Details Magazine and they asked him, do you want to get more involved in politics? And Woody Harrelson answered, no, I don't believe in politics. I'm an anarchist, I guess you could say. I think people could be just fine looking after themselves, which I don't think definitively really answers what an anarchist is. And you could argue and say, Woody Harrelson doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. But if he's telling people he's an anarchist, who are we to say he's not? That's fair. I think that's a fair point. Question number two, Stan Lee or Alan Moore? Alan Moore. That's true. That one was kind of easy because anyone who knows who Alan Moore is, which is the author of The Watchmen, has been a self-proclaimed anarchist for as long as he's been doing interviews. But in 2019, he did announce he'd be voting for the first time in 40 years. I think that's important. Yeah, I, I think that was just because 2019, I believe United Kingdom had a huge election that was worth speaking out about. Question three, Muhammad or Jesus? I guess I would go with Jesus. Yes. So the Jesus thing is actually super great because there's actually a Christian anarchy movement. And that's definitely, I feel like, an episode. But it's grounded in belief that there's only one source of authority to which Christians are ultimately answerable to, which is the authority of God and the teachings of Jesus. The author did an interview and was asked, was Jesus an anarchist? And I have his answer because I thought it was really great. I think a good case can be made that, yes, in many ways he was. To quote Tolstoy, who also actually was an anarchist, or allegedly is, or was, because he's dead. Okay. Christianity, in its true sense, puts an end to the state. It was so understood from its very beginning, and for that, Christ was crucified. There are many New Testament passages that would suggest this, and I can only mention the main ones here. I've tried to cover all of those commented on by Christian anarchist writers in my book. The most famous can be the Sermon on the Mount but much of its content is repeated in many passages in which Jesus, James, Peter, or Paul talk of forgiveness of loving our enemies and not judging one another. The state does not do that, or rather we don't do that through it. And if we did it, then the state would anyway become largely redundant. There's also a third temptation in the desert, a pretty clear condemnation of the state idolatry or the temple cleansing, where Jesus's direct action clearly implies the denunciation of the concentration and abuses of the religious, political, and economic power. And most Christian anarchists insist the action was nonviolent, by the way. So even, even these guys are pacifists here. Then there are all the other bitter criticisms that the Pharisees as hypocrites in their application of divine law, criticisms that don't seem applicable into some church authorities today. Jesus's arrest and trial 
also exemplify his attitude with the respect to political authorities and his crucifixion embodies both condemnation of the state violence and his forgiveness alternative to overcome it. Then there's the book of Acts, the many epistoles, and of course, the apocalypse, all of which can be convincing Christian anarchist interpretations on. In other words, according to quite a few passages in the New Testament, Jesus' teaching and example tend towards anarchism broadly defined. So I think there's a good argument that Jesus was just trying to do what's best for everybody and not necessarily what the state was saying. Definitely. It's weird because there's some people on that spectrum who I would agree with strongly and others who you can really take that the wrong way. People on the Christian spectrum? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I used to get in arguments with my father when I still talked to him and he would try to push this Republican narrative and I would all the time talk about how Jesus was more of an anarchist than a Republican. And then he would stop talking to me. It was a great technique to get my father to shut up. Good job. Question number four, Jefferson airplane or the doors? I don't know too much about either of these. I guess I would say, I don't know. Gosh. I feel like I'm going to be, I'm going to sound like an idiot either way. I'm going to say the doors. Jefferson Airplane. The album Volunteers was marked with strong anti-war and pro-anarchism songs. Several obituaries of Paul Kantner, who was a founding member and vocalist and guitarist, made sure to mention that he had very well-held political anarchy ideologies and activism. The doors, I think, I think they were in it for the commercial success, but Damn. I don't want to speak for all of them. Okay. This one's, this one's one I really enjoy. Um, number five, sex pistols or against me. I have no idea who against me is unfortunately. So I guess I'm going to have to guess the sex pistols. Okay. So what's great about against me, who are the anarchists? Oh. They were like one of those bands that came out during, I don't know, like the, indie punk early 2000s so this time at this time i think you were probably listening to like britney spears and then you were going into college where you started listening to more indie music and i think you kind of skipped over the new newer punk stuff is that true i feel like that's true in your music history definitely it took me a while to get over my hatred of because i disliked pop punk so much i really stayed away from any punk music for probably too long and i i'm actually a late comer to against me because i think in my punk music days by time against me kind of came around in my universe i was switching to more like oh i need to listen to like alt country and other emo stuff or not emo but indie i'm in the indie music scene now right so I think in my my history of against me and people I knew who liked against me, I don't even think they realized how truly anarchy they are. But uh, Laura Jane Grace, who you might be familiar with now because she's kind of a trans icon, she is very, very vocal about her anarchy beliefs. And she's written multiple songs about being pro-anarchy. And she kind of has the unofficial anarchy song theme song with the 2000s, Baby, I'm an Anarchist. 
Sex Pistols, on the other hand, I believe some of the members have recently tweeted in support of Trump. Oh, no. So you couldn't get more (laughs) off the pop punk spectrum than that. I have noticed that because of this podcast and, and other things, there are a lot of older musicians who just turn out to be people you don't expect. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of boomers that are showing their boomer colors. Oscar Wilde or W.B. Yates? Question six. Oscar Wilde. That's true. In The Soul of the Man, Wilde argues that under capitalism, the majority of people spoil their lives by unhealthy and exaggerated altruism, are forced indeed to spoil them. Instead of realizing their true talents, they waste their time solving social problems caused by capitalism without taking their common cause away. Yeats, on the other hand, was an Irish nationalist his whole life. So I think Yeats probably had socialist leanings because of Irish nationalism's history of that. But again, you're supporting the state. Question seven. And if you don't know who this guy is, I'll try to give you a clearer idea. But Marcel Duchamp or Pablo Picasso? They are both artists. Yes. Guess I'm going to go with Pablo Picasso. So great answer, but it is wrong. Uh, Picasso was a communist. Marcel Duchamp, he is kind of like a lot of times credited with being like the father of Dadaism. And he had, his most famous work was basically a latrine or a toilet and casted it and made people look at it in museums. But it could be argued that he was uh, very much influenced by Max Stirner, who I believe Max Stirner is a right wing anarchist, but at the end of the day, it's an anarchist, I guess. So that was his influence. The ego and his own was Stirner's book at the time. Uh, this is one I really enjoyed too. Gwen Stefani or Machine Gun Kelly? Question eight. Machine Gun Kelly? Yeah. I had no idea. Gwen Stefani, she doesn't like to talk about her politics at all, but I feel like she doesn't like to talk about them because she's kind of known as like a alternative rock pop star, right? So like if she tells everybody she's not as left in her politics, it might affect her fan base. So I think that's why she does this sort of like, oh, I don't like to talk about politics bullshit. Oh, yeah. She also said in an interview that she didn't consider herself a feminist in some of her early pop anthems. Like, I'm just a girl. Like when she wrote that, she was just like, oh, I was just an angry woman. And it's like, wow. (laughs) Wow. Because I think a lot of feminists like to point to that success as like somehow symbolizing like women are strong. But Machine Gun Kelly, who, if you don't know who he is, he's an American musician, actor and fashion model. (laughs) And he performs hip-hop, punk, pop-punk, alternative, pop-country music. He is a self-proclaimed anarchist. And he's very vocal talking about those beliefs. And the last one I came up with, I think it's going to be very easy, but we'll see. Eric Andre or Dave Chappelle? Dave Chappelle? No way, man. Dave Chappelle is like, what... I don't even, you know, see, the reason I answered that was because I was thinking he was on the libertarian anarchy spectrum. 
Oh, that's good. And and you might be right, but as far as I can tell with Dave Chappelle, he is a very much a person a supporter of the system. Uh, take oh. his 2016, was it? Was it 2016? Right after Trump got elected and he was on that SNL episode and he was like, we should just give him a chance. And then I recently saw an interview during Black Lives Matter and he was talking about how not all cops are bad. So he does have some sort of faith in the system. I see. For whatever reason. No judgment towards it, but I don't really know much about either of them. Eric Andre is known for not only doing bits and talking about anarchy, but it's like inhibited his whole comedic thing. Like his whole comedy has a sense of anarchy to it. And a lot of it's like prank comedy, but I think it's very smartly done. And I do recommend watching the movie Bad Trip if you haven't seen it. It's fucking great. Yeah, Um, I've not seen a single thing. You haven't seen anything Eric Andre did? I don't well, this is your homework now. Oh, this is God. this is what we've learned from this quiz. Everyone must go out and watch some Eric Andre. It will make you feel good. Okay. And listen to Machine Gun Kelly and Against Me. And Against Me, yes. And what was the other one I missed? Jefferson Airplane and read some Alan Moore. Yeah. And maybe don't don't be judgmental against people who like Jesus, even though neither one of us are really truly propagating that culture you did great though no i did terribly i did so bad i looked up eric andre and one of the top results is was machine gun kelly on the eric andre show two anarchists together yeah great art for us no i don't know actually i never even heard of machine gun kelly until he started dating um the woman with small thumbs what is her name uh brian austin green's ex-wife i don't know why i can remember brian austin green and i can't think megan fox jesus uh, christ I, yeah i've never heard of him until megan fox i also don't pay attention i yeah i i, I have zero pop culture yeah oh i'm so bad at this it's okay it's not for it's not for everyone all right so back to the case the state police believed that the work was done by professionals. And Sacco was prosecuted for the Bridgewater job, even though he did have the alibi from his employer. But the police put it as a phase of the brain tree murders. They put them together so they could prosecute Sacco on both charges. Oh, wow. Cops doing dirty work. Who would have guessed? Part of the jury was chosen from sheriff's deputies from Masonic gatherings and persons the deputies deemed, quote, representative citizens, substantial and intelligent. So I get most of this information from the Felix Frankfurter article, The Case of Sacco and Vanzetti. And Felix Frankfurter was a Supreme Court justice and Harvard Law professor. He doesn't believe they got a fair trial. (laughs) Doesn't sound like it. (laughs) As with most people by the end of this whole story, Will. So he definitely does not believe the jury was chosen particularly fairly. 
the judge is Webster Thayer, who had recently given a speech denouncing the left. So there is also not a particularly unpartial judge in the case. How can you be? This frustrates me all the time, especially with these newer cases coming out. I don't understand how a judge, you come out, speak about a certain either for or against a political party and still be considered a non-biased person in a law case. Yeah, I don't either. It feels like you should, your judgeness should be revoked. I definitely agree. Sacco and Fizzetti are represented by many people over the trial. And many of them are defenders of radicals and people that their companions had recommended. However, many of those Lawyers were unfamiliar with the traditions of the Massachusetts bench. Frankfurter does mention that they may have not gotten any sympathy from the judge at the time, but I don't think that they would have anyway. So maybe a moot point. Paco and Vanzetti spoke very broken English and testimony shows that they misunderstood questions throughout They used an interpreter, but his conduct was so suspect that they had to bring in their own interpreter to double check the state's interpreter. Wow. 59 witnesses testify for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts who claim to have seen both defendants at Braintree on the morning of April 15th or claim to recognize them as they escaped in the car. Which is, I feel like that's a sus number of witnesses. Yes, that part is absolutely very, very suspicious. And I'll get into that a little bit more. But 99 people testified for the defense that either it was not them that they saw or confirming Sacco and Vinzetti elsewhere at the time of the murders. So there's just a lot of people saying contradicting things in this case. And that's crazy, too, because they're like, okay, you, you're bringing 60 people who will bring 100. But one of the more well-known alibis of Saka was the Italian consulate testifies that Saka was in Boston seeking a passport to Italy. If he had been in Boston, it would have been impossible for him to be in Braintree at the time of the robbery. Specifically, Vanzetti had many customers testify that they purchased things from him at the time of the murders. And that's incredible because I feel like, I don't know how receipts work at the time, if they had receipts, but at least for the seeking a passport, feels like you would have filed paperwork. Like there were would have been, so by thereby saying that he was at Braintree instead of Boston, you're also negating part of the state that says we have verification. Yeah, that, I thought that was a pretty crazy one. So we do have these witnesses, but the trial starts about a year after the event happens. And not only is it a year after the fact, but police made gross missteps in their identification procedures. What? (laughs) The police fucked up? No, no, I won't have it. Of course. What do you call them? Defendants accused accused um people under arrest they're supposed to be all those work yes (laughs) 
people under arrest are supposed to be showed in a lineup with a variety of other people who may be of the same or different racial makeup and all sorts of things who look similar and different. And they did not do this. They showed witnesses, either Saka or Vanzetti, singularly, and they had them act out the crime. What? Even so, many people who would come to testify for the state, they testify at the beginning right away that it wasn't the person that they saw. So there's a preliminary trial, and some of these people say, no, I couldn't identify them. And then a year later, they say, nope, this was, he was there and he did it. So there's a lot of time passing. They change their stories. It's very bad. This part is just a mess. Well, I wouldn't even be surprised if the people who changed their stories, if they were somehow threatened. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons why, especially since this case starts to garner so much public attention pretty much immediately internationally and of course in radical communities so once people get the idea that this is actually a trial against anarchists then they're much more likely to be like oh yep uh it was this person there's kind of three main arguments so the first one is were they at the scene? The second one is their arrest as proof of consciousness of guilt, which is very, very bad. It's kind of ridiculous. So Saka and Vizetti are arrested and they're not told they're arrested for murder or the holdup. They believe that they are arrested for radicalism. And so they do lie and they say, no, we're not anarchists. No, we're not radicals. Oh. And then later on, when they realize well, what the actual charges are, they're like, yes, we're anarchists. Yeah, we lied to the police. But the judge and the prosecution kind of paint this as they're liars. And this is they were guilty because they were lying at a time of arrest. So it's a, it's a bad one. That's incredible. That's incredible police work right there, folks. Yes, it's not great. Uh, the third thing is... Uh, physical evidence. Sacco and Vanzetti both had pistols on them at the time of the arrest. And there's reasons for this. Sacco began carrying a gun when he was a night watchman at his shoe factory. And the employers at the shoe factory testified, of course, you carry a gun if you're a night watchman. Benzetti also carried a gun because he is a fish peddler and he's carrying around cash and there's lots of robberies at the time. Well, if you're a radical, you're not allowed to right, have a gun. Exactly. That's, that's something that gun law enthusiasts are trying to talk about all the time. It's true. That's the kind of gun control they want. If you're a radical, Absolutely you don't true. get a gun. If you're an American, you get a gun. So the prosecution tries to tie the bullets from the shooting to Sacco's gun. But they are only partially successful. The expert witness testifies that the shots were from a pistol. But it doesn't elaborate further at that point. 
Oh, and then, of course, of course, this gets to the main point of this whole story. Most of the trial is centered around patriotism and their radicalism. So the prosecution focuses on how they were pacifists and they had flown to Mexico to avoid the draft. The prosecution plays up the patriotism and the fact that they were anarchists and radicals as their character assassinations. It should be noted that there was no attempt to trace any of the stolen money or connect them to the stolen money or connect them to robbery in general. Where the fuck's the money, Lebowski? No idea. Uh, They do at first believe that it may have escaped to Italy with those other people, but they do find that that wasn't the case. So the money doesn't matter. Damn. Before the jury meets, the judge instructs the jury, quote, it was his pistol that fired the bullet that caused the death of Beer Deli, when in fact, the witness didn't say that. The witness said that the bullet came from a pistol, but he did not testify that it came from Sacco's pistol. So the judge has given the jury incorrect information before they go into their whatever it's called. How do we still use this system in 2021? It's, it's not good. It's very bad. So the judge writes up a summary. There are 24 pages. 14 are abstract legal generalities. And this is from the Supreme Court justice who wrote this article. Two pages, two pages, two pages out of 24 are devoted to the identification of Sacco and Vanzetti. So that's the 99 people who testified on behalf of the defense and 59 on behalf of the prosecution. Two pages. And the judge doesn't mention the name of any of the witnesses. The alibi testimony is dismissed in two paragraphs. And then five pages of this are given to the consciousness of guilt argument, which we already talked about how that was a reflection of the bad police work and all all sorts of things. I just can't believe that they lean. I mean, I can believe it because I'm not stupid and I understand American politics are bad, but it's just wild how much they lean into this bad work. And they're like, yeah, it's like this false logic of like, no, we already said it was true. So it's true. Yeah. It's like, that's not how it (laughs) doesn't work that way. Why is everybody letting it work that way? I don't know. I have no idea. The trial lasted nearly seven weeks. And then on July 14th of 1921, Sacco and Vanzetti are found guilty of murder in the first degree. Wow. Here we are a hundred years later. What's different? Now, of course, this trial was a circus. People are pretty outraged, but calls for new trials are refused by the judge. Even when they procure an affidavit from the expert who said that the district attorney knowingly, well, the affidavit says that the district attorney knew that the expert witness was going to say that there was no evidence that the bullet came from Sacco's particular Colt automatic. And the expert says, quote, the questions were prearranged to mislead the jury. So this, along with all of the other bad evidence, still the judge refuses another trial. And so the case goes to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts. It, but in January of 1926, the Supreme Court decides that the judge 
was not in air. What? This is important to know because the Supreme Court is unable to inquire into the facts of the case at all. They must strictly look at whether the judge does anything wrong in denying the attorney's motions for a retrial. But what about where he said that the the bullet came from one of their guns? There's not even a way to dispute that, even though it's written in his his uh, what are, what do you call that when the judge writes a bunch of stuff about the trial? <laughs> I don't a summary, the summary. Yeah. So in the summary of his trial, they can't even point to that and say, like, this is obviously fallible. It doesn't sound like it. And what Frankfurter says, Frankfurter mentions that the reason for this is because the Massachusetts Supreme Court is very restrictive in these cases, whereas if this case had been tried in New York or in England, they would have looked at more aspects of the case and probably came back with a different verdict. But because it was in Massachusetts, this is the way it went. Is this because Massachusetts was founded by a bunch of Puritans? It's possible. I don't know. I mean, they burned a bunch of women in the 1600s. I'm sure that they don't want people digging into their court notes of how they fucked up. In addition, some of the other evidence that comes out after the trial, they have been convicted, but a man named Celestino Madieros admits to the crime and writes an affidavit giving details about the crime. Oh, so it was an Italian guy. (laughs) But Celestino Madieros is actually part of an organized crime group. Oh, he's like early mafia. Yes. So he's already in jail and is already sentenced to death and convicted of murder. So the state, oftentimes it's difficult to believe guilty parties when they give confessions like this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because they're already, they can't die again. (laughs) Yeah. But Felix Frankfurter does mention that the prosecution in his cases used his confessions as why they convicted him of murder in the first place. So why can't they use his confessions of this murder in this case? Which makes sense. Yes. The prosecution also counters his affidavits, Celestino Madieros, with 26 of their own. So they don't want him to be guilty for whatever reason. (laughs) Well, they just want to punish radicals. Yeah. In addition, gosh, I'm going to keep saying that uh, the Boston Herald writes an editorial that wins a Pulitzer Prize in 1927 called We Submit, reversing their opinion that originally had held Sacco and Vanzetti guilty. Oh, wow. A newspaper actually writing an article to help people. Interesting. The public opinion is definitely turning Of course, this law professor, Felix Frankfurter, publishes this article where I got a lot of this information in the Atlantic and petitions are sent by Albert Einstein, George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells. That's incredible. That's an incredible three people to have on your side. On your side. Yeah, there's there's also protests. There's a little bit of violence. There's not only in the United States, but also internationally. And if you go to read this article by the Supreme Court Justice, there is pages and pages about the Celestino Madieros part, but 
we could not cover that in this episode. So I apologize for that. It sounds uh, like he could be a full episode. Yes. If he's like an old mafia guy who's like tied to this. It is. It's very interesting. But it does kind of that argument does tie back to the idea that the state police did believe that this was probably done by professionals. Why go after them? Because they support the deep state and you can go after the radicals that are trying to destroy any idea of the state. I did read the Boston Herald article and they do say we do not support their ideas, but they obviously <laughs> just to be clear, we, yeah. we love the state. <laughs> kind of funny. We kiss the state's boot. Right, right. The execution dates are set by fair, but it's postponed due to these protests and petitions. But they are on August 23rd of 1927 executed by the electric chair. Force them out. R.I.P. to two heroes. Just absolutely destroyed by these fucking cops. Demonstrations and protests continue internationally long after their deaths. It feels like I found a lot more information about the international protests and perhaps they were still happening in the United States. I know that particularly Emma Goldman did feel guilty in her last years that she didn't do more for them, but she was going through a lot at the time anyway. So it wasn't, you know, that's an aside. So much that only one person can do. Right. In 1928, Upton Sinclair publishes Boston, a novel surrounding Vanzetti's life which is somewhat of an indictment on the American judicial system, but doesn't argue for the innocence or guilt of Vanzetti. Because Sinclair, later on, he gives interviews and such, revealing that he had really received a lot of contradictory information from people very close to the case, because this is pretty biographical. He does interview Vanzetti and many of the people involved in the case. But some people said, oh, yes, of course they were guilty. And other people say, no, they weren't. So he doesn't take a side in his novel. And so he is hated from both the left and the right. I mean, yeah. What's the point of writing about yeah. can't take a side? <laughs> but I mean, I understand it in some ways because... I don't know that that was really the point of why he was writing. Yeah. Because like you can write an indictment of the judicial system. Well, as as we'll see here in a second, the indictment of the judicial system is kind of unrelated to the guilt or innocence of Sacco and Vincetti. The case is reopened once more in 1961 and once more in 1983. And in both of these times, they do find that supposedly there is proof that the bolts came from Sacco's revolver. But in 1977, the then governor of Massachusetts, Michael Dukakis, writes a proclamation stating that both men were unfairly tried. So ultimately, we don't know if they were guilty or innocent, but they were for sure unfairly tried. I 100% believe they were innocent. And it's terrifying that they reopened the case 
and somehow proved that the bullet came from Sako's revolver when there is no way. I don't believe that they kept that stuff in great condition. Right. Yeah. I don't know what you could have possibly done to prove that. Also, I'm not quite sure. I did say revolver and I did write down revolver, but I'm not sure if a pistol and a revolver are exactly. I don't think they are the same thing. So one of those is correct and one of them isn't. Wouldn't a revolver be a type of pistol? You might be correct. Well, I know that they're both handguns. Okay. This seems to be what the ballistics evidence is. One of the recovered bullets could not have been fired from Stockos, which is what someone was saying. Cult automatic. It was clearly fired from someone's cult. Ballistics expert Proctor testified that bullet three was consistent with being fired through Sacco's pistol. Expert Van Amber noted a scratch on bullet three likely made by a defect in the rifling of Sacco's pistol. So it's like they're looking for evidence that wouldn't otherwise be there like here's the fact that we want to believe we want to believe the bullet came from this gun so how do we prove right that? yeah versus yeah. what they really should be saying is is this a possibility or what is the real likelihood and instead they're like this is the statement we need to prove how do we prove it which is happens today in criminal cases and it really that's a that's not at all how we should be handling things in our legal system. No, no, not at all. It just keeps happening and there should be, it, it shouldn't happen. Um, I didn't talk about this enough, but I guess there really wasn't too much to talk about. But the case really more was a trial of can we convict radicals of crimes? Yeah. No, I think you did a great job of making that clear while you were talking because of the ridiculousness of what was happening here. Like what, what would be the other motivation for trying to pin the crime on these two guys? Right. It obviously has to be that they're radicals and nothing becomes more emphasized than when you have a mafia man coming out saying, I have the details of the crime. And they're like, you shut up. Yeah. You shut up. We already have these two radicals. We want to fry send a message to all these other radicals supposedly he madiero does know details that probably wouldn't have been known by people who didn't commit the crime but everything is lost to history now no matter how many times people try to reopen the case and prove things yeah i have no idea if dukakis was actually like a great governor i almost feel like Maybe not because that name's too familiar. I'm feeling like, uh, why, well, he lost why do the I... he lost the presidential. Oh, okay, yeah. So that's why you know him. I'm like, why do I know his name? Probably did something terrible, but good on him for at least saying that they were treated unfairly. And he maybe would have gotten the presidency if he had said that they were innocent. Right, right, right. <laughs> Thank you for doing all that research and showing the the controversy of being a radical.
political in the United States. Like, I think a case like this shows why it's difficult to be a true activist because the state will find a way. And I'm not saying it's completely corrupt everywhere, but it's clear that like in the history of the United States, we don't treat activists, especially radical activists very well. And we tend to find a way to bring those people down before they have a chance to make a difference. And that's a bummer. And also we didn't really talk much about this, but the, state was also really trying to connect anarchy and violence in the people's minds at the time. And it seems like mostly they succeeded. Yeah. And there's definitely other stories and we kind of covered it on the labor episode with the Haymarket incident, but the United States on a authoritarian level love to connect that these groups are violent because it protects the state, because these these groups challenge the state. And when these groups challenge the state, their end goal isn't violence. Yeah, it's some dismantling, but it's dismantling for the benefit of everyone. It's not a dismantling to create chaos or just pure destruction. And they want you to sort of believe that by connecting a bank robbery or not a bank robbery, a shoe factory robbery with two guys who just wanted to read pamphlets and find ways to make life easier for everyone. Yeah. For me, though, I'm at an age or something place in my life where I just can't use labels anymore because it just doesn't feel authentic at all to me. I would not call myself anything. Well, I think we should start thinking about these things more in terms of adjectives rather than nouns. Yes. Yes. Because, yeah, I, I think I have some anarcho influences and I, I definitely do love a lot of the ideas of anarchy, especially left leaning politics. But would I say I'm a full anarchist? No, but that's because I'm thinking of it more of an adjective rather than something that completely embodies every decision I make. That's a very good way to put it. I agree. I feel like that's what you're getting at. Yes, that is what I was getting at. <laughs> so thank you for reading an article from 100 years ago <laughs> to tell us this important story, Molly. It was super fun. I, one of the reasons I liked using this article was because the Atlantic has been around forever and they still have archives of all this stuff. And it was just so crazy. To, and also, when I found the Boston Herald one, I was just like, wow, <laughs> it seems like a really long time ago, but we still have records of that stuff. So it's very interesting. Yeah, I think it's it's exciting when you can find that on the Internet because we've lost so much. Yeah. yeah. Through the transition of things being in a book to going digital. So when you find something as important as that, it's like great to know that someone somewhere had the realization and resources to make it happen for us <laughs> junior researchers over Definitely. here. So Molly, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at MollyMM9. And you can find me on the same platforms at Bridget underscore Suckit. You can find this podcast 
on those platforms as well at sex with ghosts underscore right now on our Twitter. We do have a link to free Sirhan Sirhan. So if you haven't supported that yet, please send your message to Gavin or <laughs> I'm, I've been calling him that now ever since that episode. Send it to Gavin or Newsom. Um, we also have a Patreon that you can support us at where we offer extra content and some bonuses there. That's patreon.com slash sex with ghosts. I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> and you can always support us without any additional cost. Just a simple click of the button to give us a five-star review on Apple podcasts that lets people know we are a verified podcast. And you can now find us on the who ha ha app. Uh, we are under the podcasts that they love. So shout out to us for that. Anything else that I'm forgetting, Molly? <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. I'm like, I'm burning up. I'm probably like delirious. I'm like probably making no sense. So I'm going to.